This is episode 104 of the Church Venture Northwest podcast. We're continuing with Winter Youth Celebration 2004, The Whole Story with Rick McKinley. This is session three, Our Story. What Jesus is telling us in this passage is I want you to intersect their lives. I want you to intersect their story. And as you do, you bring my life to their story. You bless it. You make it better. You pierce their darkness with light that illuminates and is like, wow, I'm really glad that light's on. Not as like a spotlight in your face. And everyone's just like, gosh, run. One of the challenges that we have today is in the effort that we've made to sort of intersect our lives, I think as a church across America, we've kind of missed this call. When it comes to living out the whole gospel, when I say whole gospel, I'm talking hands of Christ, feet of Christ, as well as voice of Christ. The church in America has really split, and so we have this liberal church that really can kind of chuck the Bible, but they build houses for people who are poor, and they feed the homeless, and they do nice things. And so they're sort of like no salt, you know? They're like, here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the salt of the earth, but there's really no salt in it. We don't have any truth, and we don't really have a Jesus, and believe whatever you want, but we're going to give you a cup of cold water. And over here, then you have the conservative church, and we're conservative Baptists, if that's what, you know, we're coming from, and so we're going to preach the truth, and the world needs the truth. And we're not going to spend so much time worrying about hands and feet, because these people are going to hell. And that's sort of like polishing uh, the brass bell on a sinking ship. It's just dumb. So let's go give them the truth. And so, spotlights are on. Dun-da-da-da, we're here to save you. And they're all like, please, leave us alone. I can't see, I'm blind. And what Jesus is calling us to is not this dissected gospel we're saying, okay, all of the liberal churches can kind of just hang out over here and, and be the hands and feet, and then all these churches over here just preach a hard gospel. But in Christ, he says, bring these together and be salt and light, which means go out there into their story and be my hands and be my feet and be my voice, but don't dissect me and just offer the world a piece of me. Give them me. Be Jesus to them. And the reason that I believe you guys can do this and that I have hope for the church in America is because I have seen young people that said, I'm going to do that. When we started Imago Day about four years ago in October, we, we started the church with basically youth group kids who had graduated. And so we had you know 15 or 20 kids that had gone through the youth ministry and were in college, and we just sort of met and said, you know what, we're going to go try to be the church. Now something happened really quick. As we engaged the culture, we, we engaged their story, we realized we didn't really like these people. And, and we, we had to be honest about it because it was just too obvious when there's only 20 of you at your church. Like, does anybody bring anybody? No. How come? I don't really know anybody. Don't want to know anybody. Don't really like anybody. But I like you guys. And as we began to build relationships with people who were on drugs and people who were kind of messed up and engaging their stories, their stories are totally messy. But in the midst of it, the hope that I had was that God has created this mess called the church. It's a beautiful mess. Because it's full of sinful people like you and me. And he says, I want you to be salt and I want you to be light. And I knew that if we got to God, that he could give us the want to. Because that's a huge problem. We act like the reason that we aren't intersecting people's stories and we aren't loving them in Jesus' name is because we don't know how. And that's, that's total, that's bull. Okay, we know we don't need to know how. We need to want to. Nobody in Scripture that you see in the Gospels that goes and tells their friends about Jesus got like a seven-week discipleship program beforehand. It was like, hey, I was blind. Now I can see. 
And they wanted to tell people about that. And so what we did is we said, God, you have to give us this desire because we don't have it. So we're sitting around and we're getting honest, kind of like some of you did last night, and it didn't feel real good. We're sitting in this circle with 20 people, and then I laid out this list of every need I could think of in Portland, and we repented. And I, so I, you couldn't really pray for like Aunt Sally's hip or anything like that. I'd be like, here's the list, clunk, and they all sat there and looked at it. And so the prayer sounded something like this, God, I, I, uh, I hate my neighbor. And I'm going, oh, this was a bad idea. <laughs> and we went on for, you know, an hour of people just being honest. And I was like, I don't like this. But they were honest. And over the course of like six months, it wasn't a one-night thing. God began to change their heart. We saw people who grew in their desire to intersect other people's stories. That's all there was right then. I'm, I want to intersect somebody else's story who doesn't know Jesus. As we did that, we encountered a lot of questions that they had. And those are questions that I want us to wrestle with tonight. And I want you to think about how you would respond to these questions. And they're questions that I believe are wrapped up in this verse where Jesus tells us to be salt and to be light. But I say all that to say you can do this. You can go home and you can be the salt and light of the world. This isn't beyond you. It's something that is a group you can do and something you can do personally because Christ wants to do it through you. The first question that we engaged as we talked to people and there was some desire is that we, it was really obvious that they were open to God and they were closed to church. In other words, they're spiritual. So God, whatever that means, I'm sort of open to that. Church, not real open to that. Very skeptical. So I call my church Imago Day, which sounds like a cult, and then they're more apt to come. <laughs> sounds weird, but they do. They're like, hey, what, what's the name mean? We're drinking grape juice? Cool. What? You know? and, and it's sort of scary. And then Christians come, and they're like, well, you know, am I going to get killed? Are we slaughtering goats in here? Like, uh, is this a real church, or what is this? So... But all that to say is that part of their story is that they're just really close to church. Now, why is that? Well, there's a million reasons, but we have not done a good job of representing the church as salt and light. So there's a sense that they could say, well, the church is a political organization. Or the church is that weird thing I see on TBN with the people with the hair and they cry a lot. And no joke, I'm turning it on one time. I always wonder why didn't Saturday Night Live and those places like make fun of that more, but they don't really have to. How can you top it? I mean, the lady's on there, and she's, she's crying and telling the story of how she goes to Africa and gives away Barbies for Jesus. I'm just like, well, that's a good thing. That's a great message. Hey, do you have a self-image problem? Here you go. Now you do. There we go. Praise Jesus. And, and so you look out at the culture... And the culture's going, like, yeah, that sounds fun. Like, do I have to grow my hair like that? Or, uh, so, and there's a sense, you guys, that I think when the church is the church, when they are salt and light, there's a huge validation of Jesus' gospel and message. But if we back off and we say, you know what, let's be lights in a lighthouse, and let's just stick that lighthouse a million miles out in the ocean so we don't have to be around the darkness. Then all they see is Barbies for Jesus. They don't see the real hands and feet and voice of Christ. And so this idea of Jesus saying, I'm sending you out. I want you in the darkness. I want you around messy people. I want you to get dirt under your fingernails with my love. And if the church woke up tonight and said, I will be the church, then we don't have to worry about answering to TBN and all kinds of other whacked out stuff that's done in the name of Jesus. Because in their story, they're going to have the real Jesus touching them and healing them and speaking hope to them. And that real Jesus wants to do it through you. So the first thing that we encounter, the question is, 
Does God like me? Does he care about me? It's funny, I love the story of Levi in the Bible. Levi is this, uh, he's a tax collector. And tax collectors in those days are, are not like the most soft-hearted guys. They are guys who go around and take money from people who don't have any. They've heard every story in the book, why I can't um, give you any money, my kid's sick, I'm out of a job, and then they just kind of beat it out of them. I had a, a football coach in high school who was a repo man, and, and, and so he would take me to go repo cars, which at 16 is like, cool, you know, we're going to do that. And so we go in the door, and he throws this guy against the wall. He's like, give me the keys. The guy's telling him all these stories, throws them down, takes the keys, and then I'm driving this car away, right, going like, <laughs> that was weird. Um, and, and that's Levi. He's sort of the repo man of the day. And Jesus comes up to him and says, hey, I want you to follow me. So Levi drops everything. Now, prior to this, what does Levi think that God thinks about him? Well, he probably thinks whatever the religious people think about him. And the religious people of that day would have had nothing to do with Levi, kind of the modern-day repo man. They would have looked at Levi and said, he's a sinner, he's a blow-it, he's greedy, he's money-hungry. And Jesus shows up and says, God likes you. God cares about you. Come and follow me. Well, Levi's pretty dumb at this religious thing, and so he throws a kegger for his rabbi. He says, I'm going to have a huge party. And, and it's a huge party. And there's, there's stuff at the party that, that isn't good. So the religious people show up, and they're sort of like the cops busting the party. They have, if they had a spotlight, they would have used it. And they're standing out front, and they're looking at him, and they're looking at his disciples going, what is wrong with Jesus? Why is he hanging out with sinful, broken people? What is he doing? What is he thinking? And Jesus says, I have not come here to, to call the healthy I've come here for the sick. I've come here to be salt and light. I care about these people. As long as the church refuses to go where Levi lives, as long as the church refuses to intersect their story, they're going to wonder, does God care about me? They're going to have a different picture of Christians. But when you intersect their story and say, you know what, he does. And he's going to start by caring about you through me. That changes everything. We have a ministry that we started to street kids. And uh, it just started by uh, guys who felt that desire after that season of saying, God, give us the want to. And they went downtown and they'd pass out socks and cigarettes. And I know cigarettes, is, it's smoking is bad for your health, but when you're living under a bridge, that's sort of minor on the list of health issues. And so they, would, they were just trying to build relationships and, and get to know them. And it moved from just 20 or so relationships to every Tuesday night feeding like 300 of them. And what we had noticed in there is that they had been preached to a lot. I mean, people come down and hand out the tracks, and street kids are sort of like, Let's go do a good deed for Jesus, and we're going to go preach the gospel. So it all could tell you the gospel. What they couldn't tell you is, does God care about me? So one of the staff one day is sitting next to the guy, and he's panhandling. And so the staff person just sits next to him while the dude's panhandling. And uh, this guy comes up and starts witnessing to the staff person. Tell him, if you need to get saved, you need to get a job, you need to do these things. And the, you know, he's trying to explain to him, like, I am saved, and this is my job, and I'm trying to love these kids. He's like, yeah, right, right and he leaves. And, and the feeling of saying, oh, you're just, something about you is wrong. You just need to get over it and get saved. It just doesn't fly. These kids have lives that are messy and broken. And do you really want to intersect their story? Or do you want them to quit being who they are? Do you want them to try and ignore their story and just get better? And so 
they decided we're just going to love these kids. As God opens up opportunity, we'll preach the gospel. But right now we're going to be his hands and we're feet and we're going to answer that question, does God care about me? Now, it, it, the thing is blown up. We've had, we have two different uh, street kid ministries that are going on. But one of the things that was interesting is how God honors that. That if you're willing to be his hands and feet, he's going to let you be his voice. So there comes this time where this guy, Johnny, who's a street guy, and he's about 24, and, and it's heard that he OD'd up in Seattle, so he died. So all the street kids come and say, will you guys do a funeral for Johnny? They go, you know what? I mean, you know what we're about? We're Christ followers, and we love you, but we're going we're gonna to tell you what we think about death and where that hope lies. Yeah, that's fine. Just do it. So they do this funeral for Johnny. There's 150 kids there. They get up. They share the gospel. Here's why we feed you. Here's why we care about you, because God cares about you. They're... they're uh, had a couple kids come to Christ. They're crying. They're, they're saying, man, this is the best thing you ever did. Two weeks later, Johnny shows up in Portland. The kid they did the funeral for. <laughs> and they're, you know, so at first they're all like, oh, uh, kind of freaked out by it. But you're looking at this whole story, and God lines up this crazy thing where they're going, will you please preach the gospel to us? You've shown us that you cared about us. Now we want to know why. In the midst of this tragedy that didn't really happen. God gives you the opportunity if you're willing to day in and day out say, I will intersect your story and show you that God cares about you. We need to answer that. Does God care about the guy in the locker next to you at school? Does God care about your neighbor, about that kid on the wrestling team, about your friend who doesn't know him, about that person who's suffering overseas. Does God care? And is he going to care through you? Are you going to be the light of the world? The other question that they have is, can God meet my needs? And, and a lot of times, I think, because we live in such such uh, abundance, particularly in America, that we, we fail to realize that there's a lot of people that don't have much. And so when I say the question, could God meet my needs, I mean across the board. Can he meet my needs so that I can buy diapers for my baby? Can he meet my needs so I can have a coat for the winter? Can he meet my needs so I can get over my addiction? Can he meet my needs for love, acceptance, and grace like we're talking about last night. When we first started the church, two girls decided that they would go and they were going to adopt a low-income apartment complex for a year of their life. And they were just going to do whatever they could to go love these people in this apartment complex. So they start walking around and praying, God, show us where you want us to go. And they find this place that's a drug rehab center for single moms. And as they spent time, they realized, well, we can volunteer here. So they started volunteering. Just two girls. They were 19 years old. After they volunteered for a while, all they could do every day is hold babies. So they went in there and hold babies. Eventually they said, hey, would it be cool if we could take the moms and the kids out on like outings to the zoo or OMSI or something like that? So they said, yeah, that'd be great. So they let them take them. By now we have like 10 or 15 people who are volunteering in this secular rehab center. It moved from that to saying, would it be cool if we let someone watch the kids from our church and we took the moms out, did a Valentine's banquet for them, and, and took care of them and just loved on them. They said, yeah. So two, two years go by, this ministry going on, and now every Sunday they want to come to church with the staff. They get two passes, passes like to go see your family or your boyfriend or whatever. And they said the, the first pass they get, most of the time they come to church. The reason that they come is because they believe that God can meet their needs. And we started doing that in really tangible ways. Um, the first is we do this gift giving thing at Christmas. It's not that big of a deal. 
We just try to get behind the team that's there. And so they buy presents for their kids and they buy, you know, stuff for the moms. And so last week at church, this girl gets up from Letty Owens and she stands up at the mic and she says, I I just want to thank God because I needed a coat. That's the only thing that I really needed. And someone here gave me a coat. And I was also able to give my kids gifts, which I've never been able to do. And I thank God today because my baby that's 12 months old has never seen his mom high. And I'm sitting there listening to that story of this simple need. All I needed was a coat and the ability to give my kids a present at Christmas. And God has shown up in so much more than that, that I'm clean now, and I have hope, and I'm forgiven. And, it, and, and that girl was in that room, because two 19-year-old girls said, I'm going to go adopt a low-income apartment complex and give a year of my life to it. We've baptized five or six women from that place because they decided we're going to go into this dark place and be the light of the world and say God can meet your needs and he'll start meeting them through me. Here's a coat. The other question that they're asking is will you be here tomorrow? So many times we do ministry And it's sort of an event. It's an outreach event. So we're going to go down and do ministry for an hour. We're going to do something nice for an hour. You know what Jesus was accused of by the religious people? That he was a friend of sinners. That means he wasn't just an acquaintance. He didn't just show up for an hour and do a polite kind of meet and greet. Hi, Rabbi, Savior of the world, nice to meet you. Oh, and you're sinful, okay. And, And... He knew these people. He was there the next day. He was in their life. He didn't intersect their story, say, let me explain four spiritual laws for you. If you get saved, you can come with me. If you don't, I'll never talk to you again. He intersected their story to say, I'm I'm walking with you. I'm going to be here tomorrow. We uh, have another team that started a ministry to an AIDS hospice. And and you guys, this isn't brilliant. We didn't build rehab centers or AIDS hospice. We just said, hey, there's an AIDS hospice. Maybe they need volunteers. Well, the first time that they found out that the girl was a Christian, they were sort of bummed. Because most of the people dying in the AIDS hospice are homosexuals, and they, they just expect that Christians hate them. And that's sort of their wiring. Sometimes we've given reason to think that. So as she engages this ministry to this AIDS hospice, um, there's a sense that uh, it's a long-term engagement. You have to be there for the long haul. And And what we found was that this team that has gone in there and loved on these men and women who are dying of AIDS, it has meant so much that they are there whether they receive Jesus or not. Whether I come to your church with you or not. Like you're going to be here tomorrow loving me. Whether I join your club or receive Jesus or not. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, we weren't in a place to say, yeah, God, I'm joining the club. Basically, we're giving God the finger saying, I don't want anything to do with you. He says, I love you. I'm going to the cross for you. God is going to be there tomorrow. And he's saying, are you going to be there tomorrow? And can I be there through you as light and darkness, intersecting people's lives? The other question, big question is, is it real for you? Is it real for you? Is this an everyday life thing? This Jesus thing? Or is it a moment? Is it in the event? We have a girl named Liz, and uh, she's a nurse. 
And for Liz, uh, there's certain rules that you can share your faith or you can't share your faith or you can kind of pray, but it has to be pretty generic. And, and Liz uh, kind of came to the conviction that I have to be ministering at work. I have to be a light in darkness. And, and so I have to speak when I'm supposed to speak and I have to love when I'm supposed to love and care and, and whatnot. So she has a patient who's just a jerk to her for weeks, right? And finally, you know, every time she tries to be nice, she goes in and, and, and he's just griping at her. So his heart fails and she, has, she goes into surgery. So she's a, a, a heart surgeon assistant. So she's standing there on the table holding the dude's heart. I would have just passed out or barfed. <laughs> but she's standing there holding this guy's heart and begins to cry, thinking of how mean he's been and how nice she's tried. And she says, God, if you let him live, I will tell him about Jesus. Boom, boom. The dude's heart is working. So the guy's alive, right? So she goes into the room two days later, whenever he's coming back. She kind of takes the deep breath because she wants to share her faith as much as you want to share your faith. It's sort of a scary thing to a grumpy guy whose heart you were holding. Um, <laughs> she walks in and says, Hi, how are you doing? And he's just mean again. She said, so she's shaking at this point, pretty nervous. She says, I need to tell you something. While you were on the operating room, I was holding your heart and praying for you to live so that you could hear about Jesus Christ. This dude starts bawling, right? Grumpy old man is now crying and weeping. And they get into this conversation about Christ. And I think the thing that it was is that this girl wasn't just doing a job. It's part of her everyday life. That she was light in darkness before she was a nurse. And therefore, when she engages some gnarly situation, she's saying, that's where I have to go. That's what I have to be. And the world is looking. They're saying, is it Barbies for Jesus? Or is it actually something that you believe? And you believe so much that you're really ready to put hands and feet to it. You're ready to live it. And do more than just talk about it. Is it real for you? I have a friend named Celestine, and he's from Sudan. And Celestine uh, lived in Rwanda as a pastor. And there was a, a huge war and genocide there, and he lost five of his family members and 70% of his congregation in one day. And in my mind, it doesn't get a lot darker than that. That kind of suffering is a place that just I look at and go, I don't understand it. We don't see it here a whole lot. And so I expect, I said, Celestine, what'd you do? Do you just go and, and find those people and beat them down? And I mean, what would you do? And he said, I found the leader of the rebellion. And... I forgave him and told him that Christ loved him. The leader of the rebellion that killed five of his family members and 70% of his church became a believer and now watches Celestine's mom when he's in the United States. I hear stories about that and I go, what is that? What kind of power is that? Why is that so weird to us? And I recognize that what that is, is the light of Jesus Christ in the midst of pervading darkness. It's something that's supernatural. And it's something that can only happen by the power of God. And the question that we stand before tonight is, will we be light in darkness? Will you be light in darkness in your community with your neighbor and will you be light in darkness in the world? And there's sort of a couple things that Jesus says in the passage. One is this idea that I'm a light, right? So I'm a candle and I'm 
kind of a light by myself. And when I'm in that conversation and I intersect somebody, then I'm the light of Christ to them. There's also a sense that he says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. There's a place where all of our stories collectively need to represent that love and care of Jesus. That collectively in this room tonight, Jesus says to us, you're the light of the world. Don't hide that. I want you to shine. And we have an opportunity tonight to shine in the midst of one of, uh, if not the world's most tragic natural disasters that's ever taken place. You guys, some of you, most of you probably know about it, but uh, I believe it was on the 26th that a tsunami hit after an earthquake. Um, and and the, the enormity of this is, is incredible. They're estimating 80 to 100,000 people dead right now. Double that will happen if aid doesn't show up. And the question that, that we want to really wrestle with tonight uh, is how do we be light in darkness? Some of you will get hung up on the fact that this suffering is tragic. Where's God? Where's God? My answer to you is simply this. When I talk to people in countries that aren't American, where they suffer every day of their lives, they don't ask, where's God? My friend Celestine from Sudan says, the reason that you struggle in the West with suffering is because you have medicine for your dandruff and your fingernails. He goes, you don't suffer. So when suffering shows up, you think God left the building. We suffer every day from the time we're born. And we hope in God. As we enter into this conversation tonight, I want you to watch some video and just get some perspective on what it looks like to suffer with these people. As, as we enter into that, I want us to be thinking about this. Jesus, when he says, be a light in darkness, he's saying, go into the darkness. Go into suffering. See it, feel it, and be Christ to them. So I want you to watch just a small clip of some of the devastation that's taken place. It's coming in. It's coming again. It's coming again? Yeah, it's coming again. You must find it. It's coming again, new way. He's coming again. What? They come in and walk in here. They're full of muggers. Shit, shit, shit. They call me on that.
I've asked uh, Paul Morrissey if he would come up, and uh, Paul's from Northwest Medical Teams, to try to help us unpack this and to really put our hearts and minds around what's happened. And uh, thank you for coming. Appreciate it. Sure. First of all, maybe uh, we don't all know what a tsunami is, so he could tell us what happened. You know, basically the tsunami is when you have a underwater earthquake, and this one has been said to have registered, uh, I believe, nine point, which is you know virtually off the scale. Yeah. And then it uh, literally sucks the water away from the coastline, takes it back to the ocean, and then it rushes forward up to speeds of uh, 500 miles an hour in a 30-foot wall of water. So uh, a lot of you, most of you are too young to know, but you know, a tsunami actually hit uh, the Oregon coast many years ago. Um, but this one has left a path of destruction that is as wide as the United States. 3,300 miles. It's hit, I believe, 11 different countries. And uh, as Rick said, it's, it's been said that it is the largest single natural disaster in modern history. So it's just, it's, it's unfathomable for most people, yeah. Now you have, um, you've been on the ground in some of those places that have been hit after disasters. <clears throat> what, what are they going through? What are they experiencing and right. feeling at this point? Right, You know, I, I was thinking about that, and, and you could probably sum it up in one word or a couple words, and that is, uh, uh, you know, no hope. Um, the people that our volunteers see are, um, obviously they've lost everything. Uh, they've lost their families, their food, their clothing, their housing, and um, the look in their eyes is, is absolutely no hope. I, I think that's probably just that, that blank, defeated, um, unrelenting you know, sadness or, or uh, fear of no hope. It's, it's all over. Where are we going to go from here? Yeah. That's what's been most described to me and what, what I've seen in a few just instances. Hopelessness. Hopelessness, yeah. And the death toll, what does that look like from this kind of... Disaster? Well, this death toll, uh, they're saying it's, it could be 100,000. I mean, it literally changes. We've, we've been just inundated with phone calls and press releases and news people and TV people and CNN and everybody you can imagine. And uh, every hour, the death toll changes. And it's up around, when I came here, around 100,000. Um, the, the problem with these type of disasters is... You know, they come in two phases. They come in the initial, which uh, like an earthquake or a flood or a tsunami, and there's the immediate death toll. But then the aftermath of that, and it could easily be, uh, you know, another 100,000 will perish um, over the, the months and months and months to come. So uh, that's, that's really only, that's, we've only seen half the story so far. And what are they perishing from? Well, they will perish. Uh, you know, already bodies are stacking up on, on the beaches. Um, they are um, without water, without clean water, which is the basic source of, uh, with, if you don't have clean water, all your diseases are just multiplicated, you know, from that. So they will, they will perish from dehydration, uh, from respiratory disease, from cholera, uh, diarrheal diseases. Uh, everything that incredibly is preventable if we get there in yeah. time. They don't have to die if we can get there in time. We can get the resources to them. So literally, they're just going to die from oh, very yeah. simple... Exposure, uh, malnutrition, uh, dehydration, starvation. Uh, there are countless numbers uh, that they don't even know where they are, and they can't get to them. Okay. Yeah. So they, they will perish. Now, as... I mean, you've been listening to us tonight talking about being light in the darkness and right. in the midst of such... Right. Just incredible suffering. Mm -hmm. And in Northwest Medical Teams, I know that that's your passion. Right. But could you just help us? I mean, if I'm sitting there with these guys, and I'm just going, okay, this is ridiculously overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And how do we even engage it right. like a city on a hill? Right. Well, let me just start by saying that the... You know, the mission of Northwest Medical Teams, we are a Christian-based organization, a Christian organization, a Bible-based organization. And um, our mission is to demonstrate the love of Christ to those people who are affected by uh, poverty and conflict and disaster. And we've been doing it, you know, for over 25 years. Now, it's interesting that as I was listening to you, Rick, I, I totally changed everything I wanted to say. Um, 
because a lot of the people that serve with us are non-believers. Um, and on the other side of the coin, there are a lot of believers. And those who go out tell us time and time again that, um, you know, this, this is living their faith. Uh, Northwest Medical Teams is the vehicle to get people out into the world, you know, to be the hands and feet of Christ, to, to demonstrate his love to those people in need. Mm -hmm. So it is, it, in many, many times, it is their way of living out their faith, as we're instructed to do. Um, and it's powerful. Um, often the case, those who serve gain so much more. Mm -hmm. And that's what we see time and time and time again. What, is that, what does that look like? Um, like I know tonight we're going to take an offering that mm -hmm. will go where? Uh, well, this offering, uh, you know, will be going directly to help those victims uh, of this horrible disaster. Um, I was telling Rick earlier that, you know, even one dollar produces $85 worth of life-saving aid. Um, we have a warehouse in Tiger that is stock full of life-saving medical supplies, and they're all donated to us. And I, uh, despite what you may hear in the press, and the fact there was a comment from a from an official at the UN yesterday, which angered a lot of people, and he called the U.S. stingy. And uh, my political statement, bear with me, we're the most generous country uh, in the history of the world. I firmly believe that. We distribute over $140 million a year, and all those medical supplies are donated to us. You know, that being said, the money that we receive from individuals uh, is used to send that to the needy people. So, so the money we receive during this crisis will support our volunteer teams who are over there and um, ship the supplies all over the world. So that, that's basically okay. where the dollars, the hard dollars actually go. Okay. All right. Tell us where we go from here though. I mean, we walk out of here, we take an offering, but we go back to youth right. groups and small right. cities. And how do we continue to be yeah. caring people that yeah. are light and darkness? Well, it's, it's a huge challenge. I, I want to echo some of the words that you were saying. I, I too believe that this generation, uh, that there will be a revival. I, um, I worked in senior high for several years, and I would tell my guys every week, um, my father's generation, your grandfather's, you know, saved this country. I grew up in the 60s. My generation really screwed it up. And uh, continue That's to do we were that. Saying before you yeah. came up. Yeah, so yeah. it's all my fault. You can, you know, just <laughs> point at me. Uh, but, you know, there were some pretty horrible times. But I firmly believe that this generation is, is our salvation, at least for our country and revival in our country. So, how do you, how do you then how do you take this out? Um, you get engaged. Uh, just simply using the words that Rick was saying, you, you engage your faith with the community. And that could be you know, with Northwest Medical Teams, it could be with Habitat for Humanity, it could be with Red Cross, it could be with, uh, you know, your church or any, any nonprofit Christian organization. There's hundreds of them in the Portland area. And, and that, I believe, uh, is something that you need to find a passion for, you know, and fill that, fill that hole in your heart that uh, everybody has to help other people. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you, bro. My pleasure. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to take that offering now, uh, if the offering takers would come forward. Picture what it would be like to lose your brother or sister or mom and dad because they didn't have water or didn't have some basic medicine. As I think about the people that have suffered over there tonight, I'm sure they're asking the question, does God care about me? They're asking the question, can God meet my needs? They're asking the question, will you be here tomorrow? They're asking the question, will your faith, is it real for you? And my prayer would be that tonight in this offering, as, as you guys are passing the plates, that the answer would be yes. 
that this little group of people will give something seemingly insignificant to the amount uh, of disaster that's there. But at the end of the day, it would be a light in darkness. And you guys get to participate in that tonight. My, uh, one of the things that I think we struggle with is how do we stand uh, next to somebody and with someone in the midst of suffering? Again, my friend Celestine in Sudan, he, he oversees all these little tribes. And he oversaw this tribe of people. And when 9-11 hit, and the towers fell down, and word got back to his tribe, of this little tribe, they got together. And they had two cows in the village. And they took one of the cows to the U.S. Embassy, and they said, will you sell this cow for us and send the money to New York? You think about what they were willing to give up to say, we want to suffer with you. We want to stand with you. And this little insignificant people group in the middle of Africa sends this message that in God's eyes is huge. And that's what you're doing here tonight. But it doesn't have to stop here tonight. You can become people who are globally aware that are truly light and darkness as darkness and suffering happens all over the world. Two-thirds of the world lives in constant suffering. You don't have to just stop with throwing the money in the plate. At the same time, it's not just global, it's local. The question that they're asking as they suffer from this tsunami are questions that your friends and your neighbors and people that are in your neighborhood are asking as their souls are going through their own tsunami. Whether it's one of addiction or poverty or dying of disease or sin. And the question is, will you intersect their story? Will you be that light in darkness? And the goal is, this is the point that Jesus is making. When you go, when you leave trying to be a city that's protecting itself and actually go into the darkness and you stand with them in that place and you say, God does care. God is going to meet your needs. God is going to be here tomorrow. This is a real faith and he's going to do it through me. And Jesus says, they will see that, and they'll glorify your Father in heaven. They'll glorify your Father in heaven. And that's the mission. Will you show up in somebody else's story when you leave here? And whose story are you going to show up in? As we take communion tonight, I want us to take it with that in mind. I want you to come up to this table when it's time for you to come. And I want you to take the bread and dip it in the juice to remember that Christ died. But I want you to be thinking, I'm coming up, God, praying that next year, someone else, this someone whose story I'm going to go intersect will be here with me. That might be your friend, your neighbor, your locker buddy, whoever. But come to this table and bring them with you tonight. Start intersecting their story now before God. Say, God, I'm ready to be light in darkness. Let's pray. Father, we look at the uh, devastation that's going on overseas and we feel helpless and hopeless but not as helpless and hopeless as the people there. And God, I pray that you would show up through your people as a light in that devastating darkness. God, that you would that your church would be that city on a hill. And I pray tonight, God, that you would take this little offering, this, 
this cow from our tribe and you would make it into something much bigger and much more fruitful for your kingdom. God, tonight you're saying to us that you want us to be Christ to other people, that you want us to engage their story. And God, you know our fear, you know our insecurities, you know all of that. And yet you still design this thing to work that we would be your people that represent you. And God, tonight I know that you care about other people and you want to care through these kids. And God, I know that you want to meet their needs and you want to meet their needs through these young people. And God, that I know that you want to show up day after day in their life and you want to do it through the students in this room tonight. And that God, you want this to be part of their everyday real life faith. And that begins tonight at this table. As we come forward, God, we bring you our friends. We bring you our neighbors. We bring you the single moms in rehab and those dying of AIDS and those places that we're going to run to and get dirty for you to be light in darkness. And so would you raise up this generation and would you pour your spirit out on them and would you give them courage and boldness not to just play games and, and leave the world to watch TBN, but to stand up and say, we will be Christ to this generation because he reigns in our lives. And so tonight, would you come by your spirit and meet us in this moment? God, we bring you our lives. Make us light and darkness. I pray in Christ's name.